Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. When thinking about your journey towards better health, do you think about water? It's no secret. We know how important it is to drink water, but we often forget to consider the quality and safety of the water we are drinking every day. Research shows that despite where you live, there is a high likelihood your tap water may not be as clean and safe as you think. Clearly Filtered is on a mission to help you and your family stay hydrated, healthy, and safe by providing the best filtered water products on the market today. Clearly Filtered makes insanely powerful water filters that completely blow the competitors out of the water. Clearly Filtered is independently tested and certified to remove over 272 harmful chemicals and toxins found in our drinking water today. They are easy to work with, family-owned, made in the USA, and passionate about trying to help provide us with clean and safe water every day. I love that Clearly Filtered is affordable compared to many other untested alternatives, has portable filtered water products to take on the go, and helps you stay safe and hydrated everywhere. Clearly filtered products are also eco-friendly and can significantly reduce plastic and water waste through their patented filtered technology. Join the tens of thousands of new customers today who have joined Clearly Filtered in the quest for better health through clean and safe water. Go to clearlyfiltered.com and use the code JUSTINGREDIENTS to save 15% off your order today. Michael Ruscio is a doctor, clinical researcher, and author working fervently to reform and improve the fields of functional and integrative medicine. With his clinical and research teams, he scours existing studies to inform his ongoing clinical research, patient care, and guidance for health seekers and fellow clinicians around the world. His primary focus is digestive health and its impact on other facets of health, including energy, sleep, mood, and thyroid function and optimization. Dr. Ruscio's research has been published in peer-reviewed medical journals, and he speaks at integrative medical conferences around the globe. While actively seeing patients in his clinic, he also runs an influential blog and podcast, as well as a newsletter for functional medicine practitioners. Welcome, everyone, back to the show today. I'm really excited for our guest. I have followed him on social media. I have learned so many things from him. He is a wealth of knowledge. So welcome to the show, Dr. Ruscio. Hi, thanks for having me and for the kind words. Will you tell my listeners just a little bit about yourself if they haven't followed you, just your background and how you got started? Sure. Uh, I'll give you the the medium version because there are some interesting pearls sort of along the way. Uh, Michael Ruscio, um, a DC, a practicing clinician, a clinical researcher, and an adjunct professor at the University of Bridgeport. And way back when, when I was in college, I wanted to go into conventional medicine until I went from being a high energy, high mood athlete to debilitating insomnia, depression, fatigue, food reactive brain fog, just kind of like, ah, what's happening to my life? (laughs) Everything just started to go south. And I saw a few conventional doctors and albeit I believe they were well-intentioned, they didn't have any answers for me. So I turned to the field, like many people do, of integrative medicine or alternative medicine, and I found a DC who practiced this new term I had never heard before called functional medicine, and he thought I had a parasite. 
I thought he was crazy, but turns out he was right. And this started me down a road of really caring about natural gut health solutions. And I don't have a bias toward natural, although there does seem to be a whole heck of a lot of great tools in the natural arsenal for gut health. So, you know, that diverted me down the path of alternative medicine and bum, 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 just practicing away year over year. I started seeing more people come in who had been to an endocrinologist, maybe the best endocrinologist at Stanford and, and gone through all the bells and whistle evaluations and, and even then gone over to a naturopathic provider and tried all sorts of different medications. And we're still struggling, still having symptoms, still having perhaps this instability in their TSH. And, you know, at first it was just sort of a, well, do you think there's anything gut related to this? And I thought, well, could be. And it turns out there was a lot to that thread. And as I pulled on it, you know, fast forward now, we published two papers in 2022 in peer-reviewed medical journals showing this connection between gut health and thyroid health. And the practices built from myself to a small clinical team and a small research team to really try to bring to people this best balance of let's be progressive on the one hand, but we have to have a filter because some of the theories in progressive realms of healthcare are fad driven or are biased from money from labs or supplement companies. So there has to be a filter to make sure that we're bringing the best to people. And that's, that's what we're doing and what I'm doing now. So sorry for the long backstory, but there it is. No, that was perfect. I love hearing different people's backstory and why they got started. And a lot of people get started because they do have a health issue that they couldn't find answers right. for, for a while, you know? And so, no, I appreciate hearing that. So like you said, you talk a lot about the thyroid and the gut health, and you've done a lot of studies, like you said, of how they connect. So that's what I want to talk to you about today is the thyroid and gut health. But I want to talk about them individually first, meaning I want to just start at the basics. Like, let's tell the listeners sure. what the thyroid is, what its function is, why it's so important in our body. Sure. Well, as people may know, the thyroid is a gland located in the base of your throat, and it secretes thyroid hormone, mainly T4, this tetraiodothyronine, which is just four molecules of iodine combined with tyrosine to make this tetraiodothyronine T4 hormone. And then about 20% is T3, triiodothyronine, so three iodines. And why this hormone matters is it is a governor of the metabolic rate on a cellular level. So every cell has a thyroid receptor, and when you don't have adequate stimulus from this hormone, you fall into hypo or low functioning, essentially cellular metabolism. And this can lead to things like fatigue, potentially constipation, uh, depression could be another one, dry skin, uh, thinning hair. And on the other side of the spectrum, there's hyperthyroidism, and this can lead to kind of the inverse. You might feel sped up, jittery, like your heart is racing. Interestingly, this can also cause fatigue over time as the body kind of gets worn down or overstimulated. Think like too much caffeine for a long period of time, you feel kind of cracked out and then kind of that tired wire sort of feeling. And yeah, that's, that's kind of the long term. One or two other things I should mention is the, the prevalence in terms of how common is some of this stuff really matters a lot. Because when a healthcare provider says, this could happen, and doesn't tell people it's a 1% chance, people will assume, well, 
that's probably pretty common. I better be careful. So understanding the prevalence data is quite important. The prevalence of true hypothyroidism in the population, it's about 0.3%. Now you will hear people disagree with that and you know we can unpack that in more detail if you want. And the prevalence of autoimmunity might be around 15% of the population. And again, this matters and I'm sure we'll get around to this, but autoimmunity is probably the main causative driver of hypothyroidism. But it's important to keep in mind that if 15% of the population has autoimmunity, but only 0.3% actually develops hypothyroidism, that tells you that not a lot of people with autoimmunity actually become hypothyroid. And that allows us to take a deep breath and kind of relax a little bit and not be alarmist with how we handle the conversation regarding Hashimoto's. That is so interesting because I would think the percentage is so much higher from things that I've heard. I thought that at one point too. Yeah, exactly. And this is what I had thought. And this is why I'm I'm so pleased that we have a small team of researchers fact-checking these things because some of these answers aren't so obvious and they can be counter to, you know, let's say there's one thyroid guru who's very prominent and they say something enough times and other people repeat it. And it's one of those sort of reference chains where you have to check the primary literature and when we did, wow, this is surprising. So that's why I'm happy to be having conversations like this so that people are more aware of it. Okay, so let's step back just a minute for the listeners. Sure. So is hypothyroidism a low-acting thyroid? Yes. And then hyper yes. is an overactive thyroid. Correct. Just to make sure. Okay, yep. so if the percentage is so low... Why do so many women suffer with thyroid issues then? Because I know a lot of people that suffer with thyroid issues. So is it not really their yeah. thyroid? Is it something else? So we do have some data to help us answer this question. And two studies, one by Levadas, found that 61% of individuals were incorrectly diagnosed as hypothyroid. And even better than this, even more quality in terms of the data a meta-analysis found that 34% of individuals were incorrectly diagnosed. So it could be anywhere from a third, maybe even as much as half of individuals have been given this incorrect diagnosis. Now, if you're listening to this or watching this, it doesn't mean you don't have symptoms and you're not suffering. I hear you. I'm with you. Let's find the cause. But we have to be careful about this promise of thyroid, which is very compelling for people. It often resonates with them. But we have, again, we have to be careful that we're making the right diagnosis because now that more and more evidence is trickling in, and as we've published, you see there's a lot of people who think they have a thyroid problem based upon symptoms and based upon an incorrect interpretation of lab work using these more sort of contemporary functional medicine ranges that look at a much more narrow diagnostic criteria. And unfortunately, this seems to be wrong. We have experiments that have helped us to answer the question, is this more narrowed diagnostic criteria that will lead to more people being positive? Is that helpful? Do they benefit? And the answer seems to be no. So yes, this is, this is an alarm bell that needs to be rung. And people need to understand that yes, hypothyroidism is a thing. It does exist. But the prevalence data is low, and we correlate that with the high level of incorrect diagnosis. And this helps us see pretty clearly that people are being misdiagnosed with hypothyroid. And again, this needs to be remedied. Okay, so if they're being misdiagnosed, is it 
something else that is causing these thyroid issues? Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly it. And this is part of what we've published on where oftentimes it's maybe a combination of two or three things. One, oftentimes it's their digestive health. So zooming way out, again, let's look at prevalence data because one of the things here that's so frustrating is when, again, a well-intentioned doctor or health educator is really passionate about thyroid. What ends up happening is people look for scientific information that fits their pre-existing belief. And they say, well, I think this and here's why. And that's really not the way science works. Science is supposed to be this inquisitive process and you look at the whole body of literature and you look for the trend in the data. So it's really easy to cherry pick a study that reinforces what you believe. So why this matters in this sort of zoom out reframe is, okay, true hypothyroid prevalence, 0 0.3. Misdiagnosis, like we covered, is high. Okay, IBS prevalence, irritable bowel syndrome, so gut health that's poor, 15 to 20% of the population, wow. much higher. Much. And if you broaden that out to what's known as FGDs, functional gastrointestinal disorders, so this takes IBS and we add to it things like idiopathic constipation or GERD or reflux, right? So it's a broader category. That can be as high as 40% of the population. Wow. Then when we understand that these ailments in the GI can cause the same symptoms attributed to thyroid, fatigue, depression, dry skin, problems with sleep, low mood. Then we start seeing a different picture emerge, which is, wow, the direction of always diagnosing the thyroid is probably ill-targeted. Uh, and we want to, yes, look at the thyroid, but we want to be careful that we don't overlook someone's digestion as the root cause of many of these symptoms. Wow, this is really interesting because I've had a lot of doctors on here talk about the thyroid and not many of them talk about it being a digestive health issue. So let's talk about digestive health for a minute then. Why do so many people struggle? Because 40%, that's huge. Yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> it is a lot. It's, it's a mixture of factors. Some of this is early life development where we're a little bit overly hygienic in this society, especially over the past three years or so. And you need exposure to a robust array of germs while you're developing to train your immune system. So that's one that's a bit absent or under present. And then early antibiotic use is also a factor. Now, if you need an antibiotic, that's fine. But the sort of indiscriminate or willy-nilly use of antibiotics in children is something that thankfully is being re-examined, but also has a deleterious impact. And then we go into you know young adulthood and adulthood and people who are eating a poor quality diet, as so many people are, probably no one listening to this, right? But a lot of people are not eating, or at least during their formative years. Like I remember going and, and on my bike and my mom would give me a couple bucks and I'd go down to the local gas station and buy Skittles. I was eating this garbage a lot as a kid. And then you get older and things like too much light at night and disrupted circadian rhythms and poor sleep health and not enough movement and stress. And all these things tend to kind of confluence together uh, as well as other things like processed food has surfactants and emulsifying agents that irritate the lining of the gut. So all these things compound and do not oftentimes set us up for 
a healthy gut. But thankfully, there are many things, no matter where you are, that can be done to improve your gut health. It's just oftentimes the stage is not set for optimal gut health, hence why the prevalence of those FGDs is so high. Well, I was just going to ask you what those things are that could help the gut, because so many times we talk about the processed foods and the sugars and the lack of sleep and the stress, all of those things causing gut problems. But Right. Rarely are we talking about what can help it. So how can people sure. help their gut? Well, I mean, firstly, just reversal of any of those things. Right, right. right. Your sleep. <laughs> uh, as one example, exercise. There have been some elegant studies that have looked at the microbiota and done serial assessments of this world of bacteria in your gut and looked at what happens when a sedentary person starts exercising changing nothing else, just exercising, the health of that bacterial community improves over time. So there are all these inputs that we can manipulate in a healthy way to improve our gut health. But reducing the processed food, if you have some, not a problem, we don't need to be you know, anal about our diet, but we wanna be high quality, but okay, a little bit of processed food, no problem, a little bit of alcohol, no problem. But the mainstays of your diet are whole, healthy, unprocessed, nutrient dense, you're exercising, you're getting enough sleep, you're having some time in nature, fermented foods would be another good uh, mainstay. And then things like supplemental probiotics can be another supportive agent to help sort of correct and encourage balance and, and just overall healthy gut function. Okay, so I have a couple of questions for you. First, how does someone know if their gut is a mess? Are there certain signs that, I mean, if you're bloated or constipation, I mean, is that just an automatic, oh, your gut's a mess? Well, yeah, I mean, all those digestive symptoms, really any GI symptom would be one indicator. And that's like we discussed as much as maybe 40% of the population. So just right there, take an inventory. Do you have constipation, diarrhea, and oscillation between the two, labored bowels, reflux, bloating, distension, pain, all of these are indicators. Maybe you've been diagnosed formally with IBS, maybe you have inflammatory bowel disease, right? Obviously these would also indicate that there's suboptimal gut health. But the more insidious factor is what I experienced, which was, if you remember back, my symptom list predominantly was insomnia, fatigue, depression, feeling cold, and food reactive brain fog. I didn't mention diarrhea or any of these GI symptoms. Right. So you can sometimes have a sort of silent issue in the GI that's only manifesting extra intestinally. And we see this in a few lines of research. One, in celiac individuals, they may only have a manifestation that's dermatological skin or neurological and have no sort of diarrhea and abdominal involvement. So I think it's reasonable to say if you're having any symptoms that you haven't been able to figure out or resolve with diet and with lifestyle, from a sequence perspective, the next thing I would do is undergo a few therapeutic trials on, let's say, something like a probiotic that can improve gut health and see if those symptoms start to improve. See if your skin starts to clear up. See if your brain fog or energy starts to clear up. And it won't take long. You can run one or two experiments. Let's say there's two therapies. They're going to try a probiotic and they're going to try a elemental diet reset. Each one of those you can do in about three weeks 
And if it's helping, and if it's the thing that you need, you should see symptoms improve within about a three-week period. So the good news here is that these things don't take forever to assess, and you can look for those symptoms to improve to indicate you're on the right track. Okay, so people may have health issues, like you were saying, depression, brain fog, things like that, that are a gut issue with no gut signs at all, meaning no diarrhea, constipation, bloating, things like that, correct? Exactly, exactly. And then some people, maybe they become accustomed to, yeah, you know, I, I go to the bathroom five times per day, my, you know, stools are a little bit loose, and they don't even think of it because it's, it's happened for so long. So yes to your comment. And then sometimes people have gradually accepted a low level of symptom as normal. Well, I was just going to say, I don't think some people realize they have gut health issues because I had my own health issues years ago. And my doctor said, let's just try a digestive enzyme every time before you eat. And all of a sudden, after a few days, I was like, oh my gosh, this feels so good after I eat. I didn't realize right. I felt so crappy until I felt better. So I think yep. a lot of people don't realize that they feel crappy. Yep. It's a great point. Okay. So a lot of these people that are having thyroid issues, it might just be that they have these gut issues that you're talking about, that they might not even know that they have these gut issues. Yes. It's crucially important that we don't take a few symptoms and just label them. It's thyroid, it's SIBO, it's candida. This is one of the most challenging things in our clinical practice we see where we'll say, Hey Jane, like what's going on? Well, I have SIBO, MTHFR and candida. <laughs> well, what are your symptoms? Right? So people get so accustomed to thinking, well, these four symptoms I struggle with are thyroid. And they can repeat it to themselves long enough to where they just assume that symptoms X, Y, and Z are thyroid. So in a lot of cases, we want to reframe this because the cause of the symptoms might be different than what one thinks. Okay. So question for you, people listening, if they're like, shoot, maybe I have a gut issue. I don't really know. Can they go to the doctor and get some sort of test done on, on it? Or it's really just done by <laughs> so symptoms? Yeah. I'm so glad you asked. So just about two weeks ago, I did two different stool tests, two of the better, best labs in functional medicine. I took one stool and I put part of the stool in one test kit and part of the stool in the other test kit. And here was the breakdown. One test said I had candida. The other test, no candida. The one other test said I had C. diff. The other test said I had no C. diff. Wow. One of the problems, a huge problem in functional medicine is overuse and inappropriate use of testing. This needs to stop because it is 1000% hurting people. And this is why, right? This was about $1,000 worth of lab testing. One test would suggest anti-candida herbs, anti-candida diet, the other test, not at all. So if you're using testing to guide your treatment, this is in the realm of functional GI care. I'm not saying, if you have a family history of colon cancer or inflammatory bowel disease and your gastroenterologist is saying, hey, you need a study to ignore that. That you wanna do, right? Not conventional medicine. In this realm of functional and integrative medicine where we're trying to quantify dysbiosis and gut health and we're not trying to diagnose a disease as in the conventional medical model, this testing for the most part 
is not helpful with how we treat an individual because there's inconsistency across the findings, A, and then B, it's much more effective to keep treating the person until their symptoms resolve rather than treating the labs. Because back to my example, <laughs> if I had done just one of those tests, it would have been a totally different care plan. And this happens so often where instead of treating the person, we treat the labs and this leads to a really lackluster outcome. So I would not recommend at this point any testing to quantify if there is a gut problem, again, with a strong delineation that if this is a medical issue and a frank disease is suspected, follow the recommendations of your GI. If you're going to see either a conventional doctor or an integrative doctor for more of a non-disease assessment, like you alluded, gut health, then I would not do any testing out of the gate. Well, that can be frustrating to listeners because they want answers as to what's wrong. They want an X, Y, Z. And you're sort of yeah. teaching, well, you've got to treat A through Z without a lab it's test. Actually, yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, and this is why I think there are so many labs popping up. It's kind of ridiculous how many labs there are in the functional space. And this is because there's consumer demand. But as a clinic that's primary GI in its focus, and as someone that did two stool tests and a SIBO test on every patient for about five years, I can tell you, A, it's actually rare that two different stool tests agree with one another. So there's a major problem right there. And then also that even something that's validated, like a SIBO breath test, it doesn't tell you how to better treat an individual. In fact, I would argue, and we just drew up a case study on this, that the testing can oftentimes lead you in the wrong direction. If someone has SIBO and their healthcare provider thinks, well, SIBO means no probiotics, that person could avoid a therapy that really helps them while, and consider the fact that there are many clinical trials that have found that probiotics can successfully treat SIBO. But what happens in a lot of cases is the providers fall into the syndrome of just treating the labs. And what's so unfortunate about this is there's almost no data that has used lab testing to inform how to treat an individual. I'll give you one quick example from Neurogastroenterology Motility 2023 of this year. They took a group of IBS patients and they wanted to see what happens physiologically when we treat an IBS patient with probiotics. They did follow-up what's known as cortisol awakening response testing. So the cortisol awakening response, you wake up, you should have cortisol, right? This gets you up, get you out of bed. It prevents you from being the person in the morning because I can't get up, I need coffee before I have coffee, don't even talk to me. This means you don't have a good cortisol awakening response. So they did repeat assessments of their cortisol levels over a 12 week period. Now at baseline, these IBS individuals had a suppressed cortisol awakening response. It was not normal, was not good. They start taking a probiotic and it goes back to normal and it stays normal for two months. They then stop taking the probiotic and their cortisol levels go back to abnormal. Hmm. Now what this means and why this matters is the testing didn't do anything to help the individual. The successful gut intervention, in this case, bifidobacterium longum at 1 billion per day, corrected downstream the cortisol aberrancies. 
right? So if we get the gut treatment right, a lot of other things take care of themselves. But unfortunately, what can happen is you get all this lab work and then the poor individual gets tied into knots in terms of avoid all these foods and stop drinking coffee and da 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 da. And they're missing the fact that if we can intervene as far upstream as possible, many of these labs that aren't helpful and waste a lot of money and also contribute to psychological burden of the individual, all of those will take care of themselves. So it's a really crucial pivot we have to make as healthcare providers and as consumers that the tests have a false promise. And for the most part, they're not helpful. They waste financial resources and they make people think they have a lot of stuff wrong with them when they actually don't. They're just secondary mechanisms that will resolve as their symptoms improve. So interesting. Okay, so I know I've got listeners right now that are like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't go do these labs. I maybe don't have Hashimoto's. Some frustrated listeners. So where do they start? I mean, I know you're going to say working on the gut, but what does that mean to these listeners? Well, a good place to start, again, that most of your audience is probably already doing or has done would be an elimination diet. So not forever, but trialing coming off gluten, dairy, soy, processed food, something like a paleo template, I think is a good place to start. Although I'm agnostic, dietarily speaking, it could be a non-paleo elimination diet. If you're vegetarian in your persuasion, you could try a vegetarian-based elimination diet. But just getting out some of the foods that are more commonly irritating and focusing on non-processed, high-quality, nutrient-dense foods. That's a great start. Now, if people have done that and they're still having symptoms, this is where the low FODMAP diet enters and can be really helpful. And this reduces foods that feed gut bacteria. And in some people, they need a periodic reduction of FODMAPs so that the bacterial community can kind of rebalance. And this is one of the most evidence-based diets for IBS. Just using IBS is sort of a, a catch-all or a proxy for gut health because there's a lot of research there. So elimination, try that, give that a few weeks. If not helping or only partially helping, try a low FODMAP. Again, three weeks or so, if not helping or only partially helping then consider adding onto that a probiotic. And this is a good place to start. And for people who want to go much deeper, I did write a book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You, that walks you through kind of an eight-step plan that's much more comprehensive. But that's a good on-ramp, those two dietary changes and then the probiotic. Okay, so like you said, I might have listeners who have done the elimination diet, have added on a probiotic. Could it then be lack of exercise or too much stress in their life causing the, the gut issues? I mean, 1000%. Yes. I mean, these things are all, I'm kind of assume making some assumptions given if people are listening to this, I would hope, and I would assume you guys listening and watching that you're exercising and you're getting sleep and, and you're not saying, well, why do I still have XYZ symptom if you're not tending to sleep, exercise and time in nature? But 1000%, those are the foundation. And in the clinic, we call this the diet lifestyle and gut health foundations model. This is what we found to be the most important foundation to lay so that when we are looking at a new individual's case, we look at all these things. And to your point, in some cases, we actually have to give people a health research detox. It's like Mary Sue, <laughs> you can't do any health podcasting or reading for the next month because it gets so zoomed in. And this can be a legit thing where it people can. start to develop a fear of food. And you know, just as a quick aside here, and sorry if I'm going on and on, but 
we are drawing up another case study where this poor lady, smart nurse actually, she spent $2,411 on testing. And the testing got her so wigged out about her health, she then developed an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And she finally came into our clinic after not feeling any better, was told to avoid 37 foods, oh, wow. that she had all these things wrong with her. And it's just so upsetting that this happens. I know the healthcare providers are trying to help, but this heavy-handed use of testing, A, isn't helpful, and again, as I argued before, it is really detrimental to patients, both financially and psychologically. Well, if the lab testing is not needed, uh, people can do a lot at home. This is very empowering. Like, yeah. take care of your own gut health at home right. then. Why do they even yeah, need the doctor? I, you know, well, you know, I think the, the doctor functions more in this case as a guide and a consultant to help them down their path. Because one of the things, you know, in, in a clinical setting where we use very little testing, it's easy for people to get misdirected. I mean, firstly, I agree with you, right? Empowerment, you can do a lot on your own. Yes, yes. But sometimes people, they're not sure, what should I do first? What should I do second? How do I know if I'm sort of improving at the appropriate cadence? When should I add things? When have I done enough and I should coast? This is where I think a good clinician can be really helpful. But to your point, yeah, people have a lot of empowerment. And I look at the clinical process, at least in the realm of functional GI care, as really a partnership and not a, well, you come to me for all the tests and that will tell me what's wrong with you and then we'll treat those tests and you'll be better. It, it's a very sort of conventional medical model that's been pushed onto integrative medicine and the labs have been so successful in convincing people that the labs are needed that this has become a incorrect truth, you know, truth that people are accepting. And it, again, you know, it really needs to change because it, it's not helping people for the most part. Okay, so I have one more question for you about the gut, then I'm going to ask you more thyroid questions. But we talked about now people getting rid of the processed foods and the sugars and exercising, being out in nature, um, sleeping, but stress. Can we just touch upon stress for a minute? What yes. do people do um, with stress? Because stress is ruining the gut. So I tell people all right. the time, like, you've got to learn how to manage your stress. But do you have like things that you love to tell people about stress and how to manage it better? Yes, uh, there are two or three things that we really like. Um, and just as one maybe quick uh, backstory, there was a fascinating study published recently that they found that when people took a walk in nature, they actually had a lower activation of this brain center known as the amygdala. And why this is important is as the amygdala fires down into your body, it can make you more sympathetic, more stressed, more fearful, and also it can cause your blood to be more inflammatory. Now, in these functional MRI studies, they found that if people went for a walk in nature and then got back in the functional MRI and had their brains rescanned, the activation of the amygdala dropped precipitously. So one thing that can be really helpful in dampening the activation of this brain center, the amygdala, and therefore it can help with stress and relaxation, is time in nature. And this goes so far as to even be uh, connected to people who spend more time in nature actually have what's known as a lower all-cause mortality, meaning death from any cause. So one of the simplest things people can do is go for a walk in the woods or whatever the densest nature scape you have access to is 
a few times per week. That right there will help, not only because it's pleasant walking around and being in the woods, but there's literally things that change in your brain, the amygdala, when you spend time in nature. So that's one. I'll pause there for a second, but there's a few more I could offer too. Well, I was going to say, let's hear the other things because I have a sister who lived downtown New York. That's hard to find nature. Places that Mm. are freezing cold right now. I have a sister in Minnesota. They're not out walking. So we've got to have something else for wintertime, right? Or those that are in busy, busy cities. So what else do you like? This is where exercise can also be quite helpful. There are some studies that have found that obsessive compulsive thinking, which for some people, I think a lot of their stress comes from they can't stop thinking about you know, their boss or their, their spouse or whatever it is that's stressing them out. So exercise can help a lot with reducing some of this ruminant behavior or rumination type thinking. Meditation, of course, can also be helpful. And for people who might be finding themselves in a very sort of fearful and anxious place about their health, there is a program that helps to retrain the amygdala known as the Gupta program, G-U-P-T-A. And it's a very sort of specific form of mindfulness that helps to retrain the amygdala. Uh, That's another one. And then also if people can get one, sauna. Sauna therapy, I think, is one of the most underappreciated health hacks in terms of it's been shown to improve cognition, reduce heart disease, improve life expectancy, reduce stress, improve skin health. There's a ton of things that sauna can help with. And if you have the resources and the space, you can get a barrel sauna in your backyard. This is what I have. Or all the way through a small pod. You've probably seen these where you kind of zip it up and your head sticks out for like $200. Um, But that's also something that can really help to diminish the stress response. Okay, so good to know. So let's go back now a little bit. So if people work on their gut health, this is helping their thyroid, meaning that now their gut health is working better, so they're absorbing more nutrients. Is that what's doing it? Well, in part nutrients, right? In part, some nutrients that can be deficient when a thyroid condition is present are things like iron and B12. So that's part of it. Probably the most important is the fact that the symptoms that we often say, it's my thyroid, are actually coming from their gut health. Fatigue is a huge one for being driven by the GI. So firstly, many of the symptoms might be symptoms that are predominantly a derivative of gut health first. Second, improved nutrient absorption. Third, if someone is on thyroid hormone medication, levothyroxine, whatever it is, your absorption can actually be improved. The the absorption of the medication is actually enhanced And this is why you see in some trials that are either treating ulcer or just using probiotics, people need less thyroid hormone over time and they have improved symptoms because their absorption has improved also. And then finally, there's likely some benefit on immune and autoimmune function as we improve gut health. The research there is a little bit more in its nascency, but I think it's safe to say that things that improve gut health may have a favorable impact on autoimmunity. Okay, so some of these thyroid issues may be a gut health issue, like you're saying, but can they also be a different autoimmune issue rather than Hashimoto's or something else? Uh, I mean, it's possible. It's possible that someone could have something like autoimmunity to the parietal cells in the stomach and their B12 
anemic. I think, I don't know if that is the best way of framing this. And the reason why I take pause with that is, you know, when when people think about these things in terms of, I've got to know what the condition is so then I can treat the condition, especially as it pertains to autoimmunity. I think you end up, um, you end up barking up the wrong tree. So it is possible and one, someone does have one autoimmune condition that does increase the risk for others. But now we're getting into the territory of the prevalence being really low. And it doesn't change at least what I would recommend to start with, which are these diet, lifestyle, and gut health factors. So the answer is yes, but the likelihood is smaller. And uh, you know that is something to maybe inquire with about one's primary care provider. Maybe there's a family history of another autoimmune condition, and they should have a workup for that. But it's not where I'd focus a lot of my energy. And I just picture the person who is not feeling well, getting sucked into the black hole of internet research, chasing down that line of thinking. And I just want to make sure they don't overlook how much, to your earlier point, and how empowered you can be when tending to these upstream factors. Okay, good to know. Let me ask you, though, something about Hashimoto's, because I know a lot of people, like I said earlier, who think they have Hashimoto's and are have been told, like, you can't go off your thyroid medicine. You have to have this thyroid medication. So sure. now if it's not necessarily Hashimoto's, how do they know if they can come off this medication? Well, we have to delineate between Hashimoto's on the one hand and hypothyroid on the other, because these are two separate conditions. Okay. There's overlap, but Hashimoto's is autoimmunity against a thyroid gland. Again, this can occur in as much as maybe 20% of the population, but it does not guarantee. In fact, odds are in your favor that if you have Hashimoto's, you will not become hypothyroid. Now, as a quick aside, some people may feel a little bit maybe attacked by that statement and that's this is meant to flip the valence of the narrative to where you are more empowered and if you're not feeling well hey i am with you all the way it's team you all about you improving but we want to be careful not to misrepresent the facts and the data because we see so many patients who are in this sort of fearful and kind of self-combative situation because they have Hashimoto's, they're afraid of it, they're starting to lose kind of psychosocial flexibility, they're going out less, they're on a more restrictive diet, and this becomes a really harmful situation when people end up here. So Hashimoto's, best diagnosed via TPO antibodies and or ultrasound, thyroglobulin antibodies alone are not diagnostic and actually have a, um, they're very limited in terms of their diagnostic capability. So TPO and or ultrasound to diagnose Hashimoto's, remembering that only maybe nine to 15%, 15 of people with Hashimoto's will develop hypothyroidism. Hypothyroidism affects about 0.3% of the population. Again, contentious, and we can unpack that more if you want, but 0.3, excuse me, percent of the population. And the diagnostic criteria here in the functional medicine community, I feel are way off the mark. And this is where I think conventional medicine has things quite right in terms of the TSH cutoff is about 4.5. Above that, you're getting to the territory of hypothyroidism. And then the free T4 should be about 0.8. And to be truly hypothyroid, you need to have elevated TSH, usually actually above 10, paired with a low free T4. And if you don't, you may have been told 
that either the Hashimoto's requires medication, this is not true, or because you have a TSH of four or five that you're hypothyroid. And often cases, this is not true. This is something known as subclinical hypothyroid. And good news here, the majority of these cases, over 50% of subclinical hypothyroid, meaning minimal elevations of the TSH, will go back to normal in time with no treatment at all. You can improve those odds with selenium plus myelinositol. But why this matters, coming back to those papers I mentioned earlier, is in these experiments, the researchers weren't sure if they were truly hypothyroid, meaning they were suspecting the doctor may have been a little bit too flippant with their diagnosis. And they said, hey, let's have you stop your thyroid hormone, retest your levels in, in uh, six to eight weeks, and roughly 30 to 60% of people were able to come off their medication, maintain normal levels, and have no regression of their symptoms. And this is really, really important to, uh, to, uh, to understand. That is really interesting. But when they came off of their medication, had they been doing something to improve their gut health or it was purely just come off your medication? I mean, because we're looking at meta-analyses and a lot of these are going to be in sort of conventional primary care settings, no, they were just going off medication. And you can improve the likelihood. Uh, well, gut health is probably not going to impact if you can successfully come off medication or not because the symptoms and the thyroid status are a little bit different, if that makes sense. Meaning, if you were told you were hypothyroid and you were not, then kind of no matter what, you don't need the medication, if that makes sense. Now, gut health measures will help you, but I don't want to represent it as... Oh, I see. You, you, you can only come off the medication if you improve your gut health, because that's also not true. People are even more empowered and in a better position than that. They can do nothing else. You weren't hypothyroid at diagnosis, so you don't need the medication. Now, just to be careful, don't change anything without talking with your doctor. Right, I was just going to say that. To misinterpretation. <laughs> but really important, you may want to get a second opinion, right? Especially if you feel like your doctor is a little bit absolutist. You got to be gluten-free forever. You can never come off the medication, uh, right? If, if they seem like they're a thoughtful, careful, cautious, scientific type, this is usually the kind of doctor that you want. If they're very sort of certain and definitive, and if you ever feel like they've been kind of pushy or fearful, this is usually demonstrative of someone who's a bit dogmatic. So as a healthcare consumer, it's your prerogative to get a second opinion. So if you're not sure, get a second opinion, review the lab work that diagnosed you from before you started the medication, and it's a simple evaluation. If you don't have high TSH, usually above 10, and low free T4 above 0 0.8, then this is suggestive that you weren't hypothyroid. And you will see this. You will see people who come in with, let's say, a TSH of 4.3 and a free T4 of 0 0.89. So they're kind of at the margins near the cutoff. And the doctor says, well, you're hypothyroid because I'm using the functional ranges. And unfortunately, and this is the alarm bell we're trying to sound, that hypothesis has been generally disproven. This is not helping patients, and it seems to actually be harming them. And the other data that I shared that's really looked at this has found roughly 30 to 60% of those people can come off the medication, and their thyroid hormone output is just fine. So that's really hard for people if those ranges aren't something they can trust. Yeah, I mean, this is... so. 
in any circle of progressive thinking, there is a pro and a con, right? You know, innovation is sometimes right and it's sometimes wrong. So because of that, we have to be able to update our model and update our thinking. And thankfully, more and more doctors are starting to understand this. This is why this research in part has been published is because this is starting to come onto the radar of researchers. And this is, you know, what we're doing right now is having the conversations that help to shift this. It was a good hypothesis. It was well-intentioned, but it seems to be generally incorrect. And again, these are the discussions that help us sort of course correct. Now, that being said, some people don't like change. And this is why I say this is a contentious topic because some people are still on the other side of this argument and they are vehemently sort of attached to that, what I feel to be sort of antiquated hypothesis. So question for you, could this be the reason that a lot of people I know with thyroid issues are constantly changing their medication or their amount of medication, yeah. trying to get yep. it to work and it works for maybe a couple weeks or months and then they're like, oh, I've got to change it to this level. Maybe they don't even have the hypothyroidism like you said. Exactly. Yeah, and this is something that recurs in any line of treatment. If you're doing the right thing, there should be a fairly clear and somewhat consistent response. And if you're not, you're going to forever flounder. Okay. So let me ask you this and make it clear to everyone, because maybe I missed this at the beginning. Is the misdiagnosis just for hypothyroidism or is this a misdiagnosis for um, hyper and Hashimoto's also? Hyper, not so much. And this is because hyperthyroidism isn't offered as the reason you're not feeling well to many people. If you go online and type in fatigue and depression, thyroid comes up pretty high in the search results. Hyper, not so much. Hashimoto's, I would say kind of in the sense that just like with blood sugar, not all levels of blood glucose have the same meaning. If your fasting blood glucose is 102, that's not the same as 162. We don't, we all know that. We all get that. Right. In fact, a, a slight elevation of morning glucose in those who are low carb or keto is known as the dawn effect and is normal. In Hashimoto's, that same sort of uh, quantification doesn't seem to occur. Any positive is, oh, it's Hashimoto's. And that's also unfortunate because some of the research has found that it's really the, the higher the level of the TPO, the more damaging or the higher the likelihood that you'll develop hypothyroidism is. Some researchers have proposed a cutoff for the TPO of 500, meaning if you're above 500, you're at moderate risk for progressing to hypothyroid. If you're below 500, then you're at minimal risk. And why this matters is the person I picture in my mind who is recluding from their social life. They're told they have to be strict gluten-free. They're afraid because they think they have this ticking time bomb, smoldering fire of autoimmunity and they start withdrawing from social engagements because they're afraid of gluten, they're afraid of the emulsifiers and the food, you know, whatever it is, and it becomes really unhealthy psychologically. And the conversation should be flipped in terms of, yes, let's focus on making you as healthy as we can, definitely, 
but let's not cause you to have an undue concern about the Hashimoto's because it's going to interfere with your life and cause undue fear. Uh, so that's how, why I say maybe in terms of I think there's too much risk that is falsely assigned to Hashimoto's and too much fear that also associates with it. Again, we want to do everything we can to improve someone's health, and there are a handful of things that can help reduce the autoimmunity, but all too often it's looked at as a death sentence or something that's handled with way too much fear. So interesting. Okay, I know I have so many listeners who will have more questions about this, who will want to read info from you, things like that. So where can my listeners find you? Sure. Um, pretty easy to find. It's drrusho.com, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. And from there, you can find my book, our podcast, our clinical practice, pretty much everything you need. Our Instagram, all that is, is right through that uh, main website gateway. And where is your clinical practice? Currently, we are all, uh, excuse me, we are all virtual. We oh, okay. were in California. During the pandemic, we went to telehealth and people liked the telehealth so much that we haven't actually reopened the physical location yet. We have plans to do that in 2024 and we're shopping around for a state, but currently we offer telehealth to people anywhere in the U.S. Telehealth, I think, is awesome and one of the best things that probably came out of COVID. And so if you're listening and you've got thyroid issues and you've got questions, check out Dr. Ruscio's um, site and maybe do his telehealth and get your questions answered. Um, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. I know thank that you. was some new info for people. I actually didn't realize the controversy was so much between those two, you know, between thyroid and gut health. And I'm going to go research more about it and learn more about that. So thank you so much. I always end my podcast with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? Mm. <laughs> Great question. <laughs> this has shifted for me of late. Um, but I think I would say having a source of enjoyment and an outlet that fulfills you and is fun. And just as a quick example, I got too wrapped up in work and in fitness. And over the course of maybe four months, I kind of ground myself down and I, I found that my life felt much more flat. Meaning, you know, you, just, you wake up, you go to work, you do your stuff, you see your friends. And I was just kind of, burp, burp, burp. <laughs> and it was because I was always on and I wasn't taking enough time for recovery, for quiet time, for time in nature. You know, all these things that I talk about, maybe for reading, for music. Uh, so for me, I just needed to de-throttle a little bit and not always be so hard charging with exercise and hard charging with stuff like this, which I'm so passionate about and how to take some time for sort of self upkeep and enjoyment. So I guess life balance would be the thing that I feel is uh, a really important ingredient right now. I love that. I have been working on balance. So you saying that I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is exactly right. what I'm working on because I feel like I'm so passionate about what I do as well that I'm just always go, go, go. And I, um, 2023, my goal was more balance. So it's been sort of nice. Like my husband and I have taken days off to just go ski and enjoy the mountains and Love it. You know, so I so agree with you. It's so important. And that would help our gut health because the stress, it's so nice and relaxing. So, well, again, thank you so much for being here. I know, like thank I said, you. the listeners are going to have so many questions. So like I said, listeners, go check them out to get your questions answered. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 
Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.